Welcome to Macintosh and Mod, Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today, we're starting a new series. It's new series time. Ooh, yay. Hey, Diana. Yeah? You know that thing you really love, that subject in school? That was always your favorite? Yeah, lunch. Oh, no, it's history. Fuck me. We're doing history lessons. Hate this. <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. I recognize that this is a shortcoming of my brain and just my ability to like absorb things. Um, this is just the one that I can't do. Other people can soak it up. I just no teacher was able to explain or talk about history in a way that I was able to absorb it well. This is why Diana doesn't know anything about history. Well, and it's funny because on multiple occasions you have told me I learn most of my history from watching movies. Movies and television. That's how, like, I connect dots. I know so much more about, like, World War II and England from all of those films that came out, plus The Crown. It's like, okay, I get I get what's happening now. I have, like, some context. It's great. But. Yeah. Very frequently. Flawed. Very frequently, the history uh-huh. in Hollywood movies is not good. And in sometimes actively bad. So. Sure. Along with the usual production stuff that I've looked up, what I've done, I, I haven't done like the deepest dive, right? You could you could sure. go for weeks on, you could do like whole series about one movie sure. if you really wanted to. Sure. But I've just done like the basic flavor level history study to, to get the idea and the gist of, does this match up to history? Like how factual can we take this? Right. Because for me, whenever... I watch something that is based on true events. My first thing is how factual is that thing? But be it a movie, a miniseries, a TV show, like, okay, this may have been based on, like, we've changed everything, but it was based on this event that happened. Okay, what was the deal with that event? Like, I will go look it up and figure it out because I am interested. I wish I knew more. (laughs) So, yeah, this is (sighs) fine. Well, I mean, the other side of it is, is that a movie that intrigues you about the history, even if you find out it's all a bunch of BS, can spurn you into finding historical accounts that do pull you in, especially when you're like, okay, I have a frame of reference now. Yes. And like with today's movie, especially this is this is one I don't even know that much about, Mm -hmm. but it it gives a frame of reference. The one rule before we get into our movie this week, the one rule I want to make okay, is that many, many movies do historical inaccuracy, and quite often the historical inaccuracy is done to help further a plot. Okay, yeah. Like, there are lots of really great movies that do a really faithful job of telling history, but they fudge some of the facts because we got to tell a story. Sure. And that's totally understandable. So, we cannot... In our understanding of the historical facts, we are not allowed to hold the history against the movie in our ratings okay. unless the movie adjusts historical context so much that it's actually telling us a bad version of history. Mm. Then it is fair game. We can decide to to buck that and be like, I don't care. It's a perfect movie. But okay. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That is the only way we are allowed to do it, because if they just did it to tell a good story, but they got you know, the basic stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I, what are we doing? We're watching movies here. We're not, we're not history teachers. Yeah. Neither of us. And so that leads us to our first movie. And what did we watch this week, Diana? A Man for All Seasons. 
The story of Sir Thomas More, who stood up to King Henry VIII when the king rejected the Roman Catholic Church to obtain a divorce and remarry. Who is that guy? Hell yeah, we're going 1500s. Uh, yeah, so my frame of reference with this is The Tudors, which is a TV show that we only watched like the first season and a half because like we had just gotten cable and we had like the premium channels. And my summation of that show was sex, 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 war, war, war. I'm the king of England. And that is the entire series as I know it. And we're just sort of continuing that exactly. in this movie. Like it's the same vibe. <laughs> it is. This is a boring movie. It really is. Like, it's interesting. I, I, I wrote myself a little review of it and I was like, this is one of the most impeccably crafted, well-acted, boring movies I've ever watched. Oh, I agree. Because, like, everything about it is such high quality, and yet the story itself is so dull. Like, so the situation is interesting. Like, Oh, yeah. We, this really hadn't happened before. This is feels very relevant to the current democracy that's happening in the United States. There's definitely a level of that. Oh, sure. Which makes that interesting. But they they really don't get into why this man, Thomas More, like what is so great about him and how difficult was this? Like, because it's basically like, I'm not going to say anything to protect everybody. And oh, I'm in trouble now. And now I'm dead. Like, it's, and yet it takes so long to go through that. And we don't really see like, this should have been like a daily constant struggle. And we see none of that. It is one of the main criticisms of the movie that I've mm -hmm. seen. Sure. Everybody else is the one who are complaining about more. Sure. Everybody else is the one who are completely just dumbfounded. Even mm -hmm. Henry, because Henry considers more his friend. Sure. It's it's made very clear, even you know when it when he's gonna definitely die, that the king doesn't want him gone. Uh huh. And there's nothing of the the sort of consternation and like just absolute searching of his heart in this. Sure. They get right up to the point of it sometimes, and then they cut away from it, mm. and we don't see any of that. I think of a movie like this, I see a guy, an actor like Paul Schofield, it immediately makes me start thinking of Daniel Day-Lewis in Lincoln, mm -hmm. who's doing a fantastic job of showing us a man wrestling with all of the implications of his office. Sure. That's what this should have been. Yeah, we should have, like, we should have seen him continuing to do the other aspects of his job, and then this being a cloud over all of that. We should have seen him, you know, trying to, like, go about his everyday life you know like going i mean going to town or going to a social engagement and like ugh, this has made me like everyone's either trying to get me to talk about it or they're ostracizing me because i won't talk about it and like that's becoming a weight on him and then like then you can start showing like the family how they're suffering from this and like how like that implication i mean it's just that would have made the build-up to him being essentially arrested and then the family like really struggling and then them coming to try to convince him to like make a declaration, talk about it, change your mind. And then he just doesn't do it. I mean, it's so anticlimactic because I mean, there was a point where we're watching this like, oh, yeah, I remember what happened. He basically just killed like King 
like King Henry basically had everybody who was against him killed. So he just get on with what he wanted. Yes. And so it was like, oh yeah, this dude's dead. Like that's what's going to happen. But like, it was so anticlimactic. <laughs> I, I Again, it's always fun because I'm like, I've already read ahead. Um, <laughs> there, The writing is the problem here. Oh, agreed. It's not even that the writing is bad. Mm-hmm. It's just that it has hung a 20 pound weight on the neck of everyone involved. Sure. Because it adamantly refuses to show a man and instead it wants to make Thomas More a myth. Mm. It wants him to be this absolute figure of morality. Yeah. And that's not that, that's not what makes a compelling story. We don't like our heroes to just be absolute gods. No. If they are absolute gods, we want to see them fall. Mm-hmm. And in this instead it's you talk about it relating to now, but I think part of the problem with relating it to now is that now everybody who does feel in conscious opposition does feel like they have to wrestle the practical aspects of that. Mm-hmm. And instead, we're watching a man be so fucking stubborn yeah, about a thing that, let's be very honest, does not resonate in today's society. So especially now, it rings all the more false because socially, it's just like, you're just a stubborn old man. Give it the fuck up. Mm-hmm. None of this is worth it. Nope. If it resonated in its time, that's fine, but it really doesn't work anymore mm-hmm. as, as an actual exploration of this. So it's a mixed bag. It's a really mixed bag. The budget for this movie was about $2 million. That's about $18 million in today's money. That's a really low budget for a movie that's this big. Yeah. It made $28,400,000, which is roughly $260 million in today's money. Okay. But the budget was kept intentionally low. Almost every actor involved took massive salary cuts, including some, I think, basically volunteering because they just wanted to do this story. Interesting. The only three actors paid over 10,000 pounds because this was a British film mm-hmm. were Orson Welles, Paul Schofield, and Susanna York. Okay. Robert Shaw, who was a massive star by this sure. point, had made 350,000 pounds for making The Battle of the Bulge just the year before. He only got paid 15,000 pounds for this. But on the flip side, he got 2.5% of the profit, so he got roughly another $700,000. Wow. So I don't, there may have been some profit stuff in that where they're like, we don't know how this is going to do and resonate with audiences. So we're going to keep the costs low. But if we make a bunch of money, sure. everybody gets a cut. Yeah. It's in interesting circles of celebration. Mm-hmm. The Vatican selected it as one of its 45 great films in the religion category. And of course it would. It's all about how a man tried to stand up for the Vatican. Yeah. John Wayne ranked it as one of his five greatest movies ever in a list he submitted to a publication in the 70s. That doesn't shock me at all. No. This is a weirdly conservative movie when I don't think it was intended to be, Mm -hmm. but it really reads conservative now. Jack Valenti, the head and creator of the MPAA, named it as his favorite films. Okay. Which, again, barf. And here's the weird one. Kevin Smith has cited this as one of his favorite films. That doesn't surprise me, actually. The dialogue. Yeah. Kevin's a dialogue person. I'm a, I, like, I get it. 
the the interactions and the characters and the dialogue in this movie are very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't fault that. It was a play first. It opened at the Globe Theater in 1960 and then moved to Broadway in 1961, running for 637 performances. We'll get into several cast members are reprising their roles from stage. Mm-hmm. But playing daughter Margaret was none other than a young Faye Dunaway. Really? Yes. Back in the early 60s. Okay. Where she was a big deal. So, hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about our writer who... Wrote both the play and the screenplay. His name is Robert Bolt. He had done a number of plays earlier, but this became his biggest hit. But it was not his first big hit screenplay. Okay. Before this, he wrote Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, oh. After this, he wrote 1969's The Red Tent, Ryan's Daughter, Lady Caroline Lamb, The Bounty, and The Mission. What do we think of Mr. I've written two giant historical epics already, Robert Bolt's writing? The words are good, okay? The words are good. They're very good. But the plot isn't there. It needs to be rethought. Like, it's not crap. Like, it's not. This movie is not crap at all. It's just the plot isn't good to make this a compelling story. Because essentially, this is a dude who made a decision because he thought it was the right decision and he died for it, essentially. Like, they're making this guy a complete martyr. Okay, fine. Whatever. Why is that interesting? Why? Like, why? Because we never see what he's up against other than death. Like, like yeah, that sucks. But <laughs> it just it's the plot is the problem. It's the plot. It's also just, again, because the plot revolves around literally everybody else and not around him, we're yeah. just bored. <laughs> Like, by the end of the movie, I don't care what happens to him. I'm like, we get it. He's like the king shit of Moralityville. Like, whatever. Yeah, pretty much. What What have you given me to care that much? They get so close. That first time in the prison, or when he's like stealing away with his daughter, and he's like, let me see the pledge. Let me see what it is. And then we just, the next scene is literally, it's a shame you won't sign the pledge. Well, what the fuck did we do that for then? Yeah. Because again, the the one way to do that, right, is that Mm -hmm. his flaw is his stubbornness. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, I feel like there's another thing I've seen or read before where the character is so steadfast and stubborn to the point where even people who support him, like beyond the family, Mm -hmm. people who are like completely 1000% behind him, but like somebody like, you know, his son-in-law turning to him and being like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You have to stop this. A full believer, even more so than more coming to him, that's what we need to see if we're going to play it like that. Because we need to see that this man is utterly and truly devoted to principle beyond even the ability for him to just be a, a decent human, which makes him compelling. Yeah. That does make a person compelling, but he it's sure. neither. And this is an example of history I personally hate. I've heard really great criticism against it. It's great man theory. Sure. And Bolt himself said he saw more as a model man of total integrity with a, quote, adamantine sense of his own self, unquote. Mm-hmm. Which is just like, what about that is, A, interesting, and B, real. Because let's be very clear, when we talk about the history with this, 
Moore is not an uncomplicated person, just like no one is an uncomplicated person. Mm-hmm. When you valorize people in history to the point where they're made into like absolute deities, you lose any of the interest and flavor that makes history interesting. Yeah. When you learn about their flaws, it suddenly becomes so much more interesting. And and you really then start to understand the full breadth of what history really is. Yeah. And some great man movies still hold up and are amazing because just the adventure and the story and the ride are good. But this is a pure example of somebody who set out specifically to write a great man story mm-hmm. and shows why that's a terrible idea. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, it's not the worst idea, but you have to have a plot to support it. And this one doesn't. No. It, it tries to have it both ways. Yeah. And just be unequivocal about, well, he's just the perfect model man. Mm-hmm. If anybody had literally gone to Bolton and was like, so if any of us would agree with Cromwell or King Henry, we're the bad guy? Pretty much. Because I'm going to be real honest. Based on the argument here, I don't give a shit about it. I'd sign that paper in a hot second. Who cares? Pretty much. Like... That it's ugh, ugh. it's just bad historical writing. Yeah. Bolt very publicly stated he never intended to write an actual story about Tudor society. He was politically opposed to involvement in foreign wars and was involved with civil rights. And he thought Moore was a figure that could be a standing ground for individuality and free thought, mm-hmm. which is super white dude shit. It's real white dude shit. I'm like, you picked this guy to be your model citizen? And I will say, I can imagine there's a level of this that on stage would be purely compelling. Yeah. Like watching Schofield, who, spoiler alert, played this role on stage Mm -hmm. throughout its entire run in England and on Broadway. Seeing him adamantly there in that without any camera cuts or anything like that and you're fully involved in the character. Okay, now I'm getting a better I, now that makes sense to me, right? Yeah. Like I'm immediately connected to this person. But the way it's all put together and this is probably a failure of directing too. It's just it's mealy-mouthed. So, interestingly enough, the opposite side of Moore is explored in the recent television series Wolf Hall. Oh, uh, okay. That story is actually centered around Cromwell, and that's who Mark Rylance plays in that series. Mm-hmm. And in Wolf Hall, Moore is the absolute polar opposite of a complete religious zealot obsessed with controlling sex. Sure. And as we'll find out, two things can be true. Yeah. Okay. The title of the movie was taken from a gentleman named Robert Whittington, who was a contemporary of Moore, who wrote in 1520, quote, Moore is a man of angel's wit and singular learning. I know not his fellow. For where is the man of that gentleness, lowliness, and affability? And as time requireth, a man of marvelous mirth and pastimes, and sometime of as sad gravity, a man for all seasons. I swear to God, I think he wrote the story and the play literally based on that one quote and not on any of the historical facts. Yeah, I feel like I tried. Some other notes just about the story stuff. Originally in the play, there was a character named the common man. That character is a narrator of sorts who addresses the audience in between, plays some of the smaller roles like 
more servant Matthew, the man in the boat rowing, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the lines that we hear at the end are spoken by the common man in the play. Oh, okay. Again, I would have loved to have that character. Yeah. (laughs) Because otherwise, more has to basically be our cipher. And it's like Amadeus. Why does that interest me? I'm completely separate from more. Mm-hmm. I'm detached from him the whole time. So give me somebody who I'm directly attached to. Bring the common man back. What are we doing? If you remake it, you've got to add this character now. Mm-hmm. And finally, when Henry tells more he was living in sin, he justifies it by quoting Leviticus 18.16. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. More begins to quote Deuteronomy before he's interrupted. In Deuteronomy 25.5, it states that a man must marry his brother's widow if his brother and sister-in-law had no sons, which is precisely what Henry was forced to do. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> it, was a, it was a nice little thing. I do love Henry being like, Deuteronomy is so inconsistent. I mean... There's some great pull lines from this movie. Oh, sure. Again, the, the dialogue is interesting. A good chunk of the characters are interesting. But they spun this whole story based off of something that's so dull oh, great. and uninteresting. And then because of that, I think it does a pretty bad job of expressing the core of the history behind this guy. Mm-hmm. So getting into the history here, and we're in our history lesson, Diana, but I promise it's not that bad. And in fact, it's going to get real fucking wild at a certain point. Okay. Moore is shown in the film as being executed over the refusal to sign the Oath of Allegiance claiming the king as the head of the church. Okay. That is the whole plot here. He won't sign this oath. The king has to kill him because he's got to have full obedience in this to split from the Catholic Church. Sure. This is a noble interpretation because Moore spent a decent amount of his time as Chancellor of England sending those he deemed heretics to be burned at the stake. Yeah. So he made a shit ton of political enemies that led to him being a target. Sure. Again, I the Wolf Hall thing of like he's an absolute maniac zealot is probably not fully true. Sure. It is somewhere of a combo platter, but for sure, this man was utterly devoted to the church in an unhealthy way. Yeah. And again, that makes all of this not hold up <laughs> in any way as, as a historical document. And then it just undermines all of this. Well, he's this perfect cipher for morality. No. Moore was also in the majority at court, not in the minority. Mm. So his stand as the, you know, this lone individual is completely at odds with Thomas More of the 1500s. Everyone was directly devoted to the church. Mm. And in fact, as a figure, he wasn't a free thinker. He was absolutely standing up for the institution of the Vatican. Mm. It's a bad choice of central character to try to do this with. There are other historical figures that you could put this sort of idea on top of, and it would make a whole lot more sense. Hmm. Thomas More's a bad guy. Now, he did get a lot of the details right. And for you know just some examples of that, Cardinal Wolsey, played by Orson Welles, really did look like that with his costume. That, that complete red tomato look was very real, <laughs> apparently. Okay. More importantly, Wolsey did mess up the divorce and he was stripped of his chancellorship. He didn't die for another year, you know, and he wasn't ever beheaded by the king, but he did fuck that up. And that's why the chancellorship was taken by the Duke of Norfolk and given to to Moore. Apparently, 
King Henry had a thing for showing off his legs. He was very proud of them. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing about that. So when the king is peacocking to Margaret Roper with his legs, that was Mm -hmm. definitely a real thing. Yeah. Okay. And finally, most of Richard Rich's backstory is conjecture, purely. Okay. But he was a real historical figure, and the perjury he committed is very public record. And historical judgment has said, yeah, he, he definitely testified this, and he was very likely lying. <laughs> All right, that's fair. And, and those are some of the examples. From what I can tell, it's like the, the story beats and the historical story is correct. Mm-hmm. Where he gets everything wrong is that this guy is the absolute opposite of everything you're claiming to talk about. <laughs> At the end of the day, the history is divided a- along two different lines. But like I said, Moore's not a perfect everyman. And in fact, he's probably akin to the Christian right we know and love today. All right. Like maybe more of a true believer, but that's the kind of guy he seems like he would be. Mm. However, one of the very interesting things missing from this movie, for obvious reasons, is uh, that Moore was. Well, he was pretty vulgar in his writing. In his response to Luther from 1523, talking about Luther saying that uh, preachers should be able to marry, Moore called Luther a, quote, pimp and, quote, arse, claimed his mouth was, quote, the shit pool of all shit, unquote, alleged that Luther celebrated mass on the toilet and listed four types of ordure or shit that he was filled with, Merda, which is shit, Sturcus, which is dung, Lutum, which is filth, and Senum, which is excrement. Wow. Nice. On an article that I read, somebody was like, could we please have the wired level crazy vulgarity cursing version of historical fiction? Could we please? Yeah. And and not even like the Game of Thrones stuff, but a movie like this. Mm-hmm. But they're all just screaming horrible insults at each other. I love it. He called the man shit, dung, filth, and excrement. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, The trial and the execution were based on an eyewitness account. It was published in the Paris Newsletter of August 4th, 1535. Though not mentioned in the film, the Duke of Norfolk was actually Anne Boleyn's uncle. Okay. Which, you know, uh, royal history is real fucking gross about a lot of that stuff, honestly. The Duke of Norfolk's other niece, Catherine Howard, was the fifth wife of Henry VIII, because he had so many. Uh, And then one other fun note, Alice was not Margaret Moore's mother. Mm. Thomas had been married before to a woman named Jane Colt, and she gave birth to four children. When she died, Thomas married Alice, who was a widow, and they never had children together, but she raised Margaret as her own. Mm. Okay. Overall, because it tries to overdo the character, I feel like the history is really bad representation. It gets the details right, it gets the timeline correct, but it gets the context completely wrong. Mm. And that's not good. Now let's move on to our director. He's also a producer. This gentleman's name is Fred Zinneman. Before this, he directed The Seventh Cross, The Search, High Noon, From Here to Eternity, Oklahoma in 1955, A Hat Full of Rain, The Old Man in the Sea, The Sundowners, and Behold a Pale Horse. After this, he directed The Day of the Jackal, Julia, and Five Days, One Summer. What do we think of Zinneman's directing in this movie? I mean, it's good in that, you know, everyone's performances are good. It looks pretty good. But, like, there's a lot that could have been tightened up. You know that editing point that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. where we must, we must find out about the pledge and, and see if there's a way out? There's no way out. 
what the fuck is that? Mm. You as a director can definitely do more. Oh, yeah. You could do more than just hack that together. <laughs> That's like high school level play shit. Yeah. <laughs> Middle school level play. I've seen better high school plays than that. It's fine. I've seen some people like really put the blame on Zinnemann for this movie for being too like just dull and uninteresting. And I was like, no, it's visually it's stunning. Yeah. Like you tell me this movie's made in 1966 and I right about 65, 66 is when like there's this whole new explosion and how people are filming and using color and certain things. Mm -hmm. But even then for a movie like this, I was not expecting that at all. Not for sort of a historical young. It's one of the least, like, bleak historical things I've ever seen. It's so colorful. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that only adds to it. It's just that for a story that's already dragging a lot, he's not helping things any. And he's spending a whole lot of time showing us the river that they have to row down. Yep. So many shots of that fucking river. Why, Why are we doing this for so long? Except to watch the courtiers get stuck in the mud. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's fine. Zinnemann said in his autobiography that this was the easiest film he ever made. The crew and cast were of the utmost caliber and they worked together seamlessly, which makes it sound like you didn't do shit. Yep. (sighs) Okay, let's talk about the one thing that is really, really good here. Okay. And that is our cast. They are quite amazing. They're great. They polish what could easily be a giant dud and make it watchable. And we will start with a gentleman named Paul Schofield as Sir Thomas More. He was a legend of stage and scream. He performed in repertory with the Stratford Theatre Festival in the late 1940s, also with the Royal Shakespeare Company. He originated the role of Salieri in Amadeus. Okay. And he originated this role. Before this, for movies, he was in That Lady and The Train. This was the first big breakout for him movie-wise. After this, he was in The Red Tent, King Lear in 1970, Bartleby, Scorpio, A Delicate Balance, Summer Lightning, 1919, the 1989 Henry V from Kenneth Branagh, the 1990 Hamlet with Mel Gibson, Quiz Show, and 1996's The Crucible. What do we think of Paul Schofield in this movie? He's amazing. I mean, he's, he's so compelling to watch. Very much so. He is, which he has to be. If you're going to make a a movie about one man, the one man needs to be compelling. He's got to be interesting. And he is. It is so interesting in how reserved he is. Mm -hmm. And he holds that until the absolute very end. And it is it is stunning because there are so many like full on capital C characters around him. Mm -hmm. And he's got to be the guy who keeps everything super even keel. And a a byproduct of that is the movie. But the only reason that I buy that he is, you know, this uncommonly upstanding man is Schofield's performance of it. Sure. Because he's just so utterly stoic in the most compelling way. Mm -hmm. And also funny and gentle. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's all these layers into that stoicism that he brings, which just makes it so much less of a, a boring watch, right? It, yeah. Lesser actors would just make this really groaning on and on. And instead, he just makes it really compelling. He's he's one of the reasons why I think, despite not loving this movie, it's worth watching because he's so good in it. Mm. And it makes me want to see a really great staging of the show. 
because I feel like if I was connecting with him live mm-hmm. on stage, holy shit, right? Yeah, it's a different it's a different game for sure. But he brings that same energy while being on camera. Oh, I completely agreed. Which are just like, damn, that's talent. That's huge. Mm-hmm. He's he's very very good. Despite playing the title role, he is only sixth build in the cast. Jesus. Now, it's really not that bad. They listed all the other stars with equal billing in alphabetical order, and then at the very end, they put and Paul Schofield to set him apart. Because he's not he was not a box office draw. Nobody knew who this man was outside of British theater. Sure. So I, I do get it, but I, but I like the fact that they were like, we're going to give him his proper due, because he is the fucking movie. Mm-hmm. But we've got some big name stars here, and we got to sell a movie. Uh, we have some who could have been betters. Charlton Heston. Oh, fuck no. <laughs> Not even a little bit. Do you take me to be a man who doesn't stand on principle? Not even a little bit. Oh, he lobbied really hard for the role, but he was never con- really considered because he was not British. Yeah, no, like, it's one of those things that, like, this type of film, like, you can have Americans in it, sure. But, like, the main roles need to be played by British people. Please, for the love of God. Like, Jesus. No, no <laughs> thank you. Zinneman insisted on Schofield. This was okay. the first choice. He wanted the man who did this on stage. Okay, that's, that's the right. That's the right move. It, it was the best move. Uh, he got his way. But Charlton Heston would eventually go on to play Thomas More on stage in later productions mm-hmm. and directed a 1988 TV version made at Pinewood Studios UK. Mm. God, he loved this movie. Again, a whole lot of really big asshole movie conservatives love this movie. Oh, yeah. Which tells you how successful your idea of individuality was here, man. Oh, sure. Bolt set out to be like, I'm going to make a man of upstanding integrity. And all of the conservatives in Hollywood went, it's our movie. I don't love it. All right. Who else could have been better? Richard Burton. No. He turned it down. Perhaps to go star with his uh, his lady friend, Liz Taylor, in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm. Which, ugh, we'll get there. We'll get there. What a movie. And finally, who could have been better? Sir Lawrence Olivier. Executive producer William N. Graff wanted Olivier to play more and Sir Alec Guinness to play Cardinal Wolsey. Hmm, okay. Again, Zinneman pushed for Schofield. Nobody else is going to be that interesting in such a dull story as this man. No. He played the role for three, two to three years before this. Yeah. He knew it inside and out and he just is Thomas More in this movie. Yeah. Best choice. All right, then we move on to Wendy Hiller playing Alice Moore, mm-hmm. his wife. Also a stage legend who impressed one George Bernard Shaw. Oh. Uh, he actually handpicked Hiller to star in his original productions of St. Joan and Pygmalion. Oh, okay. And she also starred in the Broadway version of Toys in the Attic. So before this, she was in Lancashire Luck, Pygmalion the Film, Major Barbara, Separate Tables, Sons and Lovers, and Toys in the Attic. After this, she was in Murder on the Orient Express in 1974, Voyage of the Damned, The Cat and the Canary, and The Elephant Man. She's good there's not enough of her sure they don't spend nearly enough time with the family that they could have no to get more of this man (laughs) yeah i think we should have had like that would have been really good connective stuff so much we needed more of them in the beginning and then and then like we can see like oh he does care about them but like this is just like his sticking point 
and like him yeah we just we definitely should have more i'm gonna get there there's a stunt cast in this movie yeah and they should have been the wife or the daughter i'm gonna be very clear while that stunt cast pays off because it's a really great performance sure it torpedoed some time out of this movie that we needed i i don't disagree Hmm. All right, then we move on to Leo McKern playing Thomas Cromwell. He played Cromwell on Broadway and originally played that narrator, the common man, in the original West End production. Hmm. Before this, he was in Murder in the Cathedral, A Tale of Two Cities, The Mouse That Roared, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, Children of the Damned, They All Died Laughing, The Amorous Adventures of Moll Flanders, and The Beatles' Help! After this, he was in The Shoes of the Fisherman, Ryan's Daughter, The Omen, Damien Omen 2, The Blue Lagoon, The French Lieutenant's Woman, Lady Hawk, Rumple of the Bailey on TV, and Molokai. What do we think of Leo McKern in this movie? Eh. Eh? I think he's good. Eh. He's probably a little mustache twirly. I mean, to be fair, I didn't remember who his character actually was, so eh. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna lie. I just asked David, wait, who is this guy? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I he he really is a nice foil for more. Yeah, because he's do, he's playing the exact opposite of what Schofield is. Sure, and his like he rises to that he rises to that occasion, but I don't care. Mm. <laughs> that's that's when it comes to it. I, don't care. <laughs> I am judging his performance on its own, and I think it's a very good performance. Mm. This movie does him no favors. Correct. However, a man who is definitely rememberable is one Robert Shaw playing King Henry VIII. We cannot quit this guy. Yeah, we keep like running into him. It's like, what the fuck? And he's so different in each one. From Russia with Love, The yeah. Sting, and Jaws. And now he is playing the absolute wackadoo cartoon character King Henry VIII. No, which I do believe is on par with Jonathan Reese myers from the tutors like, it's really fucking good it's the same vibe it's like listen i fuck and i'm gonna get what i want <laughs> like because i'm the king of england like and, that's just how it rolls yeah well and interesting in this one it's it's way less about the i fuck sure. but more so about the like i am the king mm -hmm. number one number two none of this shit makes sense to me and I feel like I am, everything about this marriage is bad. Yeah. Now, that's not true. That's not, I mean, it really was King Henry wanted to fuck other women. Like, that. let's be very clear. But, like, in this movie, it's all about the heir. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, especially with the story they're trying to tell. And, again, I don't mind the sort of great man thing if you're going to play it to its, like, full logical conclusion. Yeah. But then I like the idea that Henry's problem is, I need an heir. And I feel like I'm being cursed because I am in what feels like an incestuous relationship. Hmm. That's an interesting twist. It humanizes Henry a lot. A little bit. Uh, I mean, again, he's a full cartoon character, but like there is a level of deeper insecurity that Shaw brings to it because of that. Mm -hmm. That is really cool because you don't get that that much from any royal figure. So to watch him be like, I'm really insecure about this whole setup, so I'm going to fix it because I'm the king. And then he runs into this man who refuses to do it, a man who he thinks is his really good friend. And again, like he's like, I'm willing to let you be honest with me because I consider you such a good friend. Mm -hmm. But the politics around him, he has to get rid of this guy. 
probably the thing I would have loved to see more is to see Henry that much more broken up when they have to kill more. Mm-hmm. He should be upset. We should see him upset because he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't get enough time with nearly anybody else, but with him, Shaw brings so many layers to it, and it's just because he's such a fucking great actor. Mm-hmm. So uh, he he gives a really fun performance. Who could have been better? Peter O'Toole. Drunken Peter O'Toole playing Henry VIII. My God. <laughs> oh, what was that movie that he was in? That My favorite watched? year. Yes. Okay. If it's that guy, then I'm yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, or, or how about other famous drunk Richard Harris? Both of yeah. them would have been great. Either one of those would have been fine. Again, I like Robert, especially with sure. the dynamic we have. And he brings a little flavor to it, that a, a little edge to it. Mm-hmm. But any of those guys would have been great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, Susanna York playing Margaret Moore. Uh, she's a pretty big deal British actress. Before this, there was a crooked man, loss of innocence, Freud, Tom Jones, and Kaleidoscope. After this, the killing of Sister George. Oh, what a lovely war. The Battle of Britain. They shoot horses, don't they? Images, the maids, Superman, Superman 2, and then a whole bunch of stuff I'd never mm-hmm. heard of. She was sort of a British it actress in the 60s and 70s. What do we think of Margaret in this movie? She's great. I mean, she really is. I would have liked more of her because the thing I like about her is she is both very restrained and like she abides by principles, but you can tell there's like a, a fuck you streak in her. She's just as stubborn as her dad. Yeah, she's just as stubborn as her dad. It's just it shows up differently. So I would have liked more of that. Absolutely. That would have been great. If you're going to make this, it's 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 honestly like Amadeus. If you're going to make this movie about this big, huge figure that uh, the whole story centers around, Mm -hmm. everybody else needs a lot more time and needs to be way more compelling. Yeah. Because we don't need hours of him pontificating. That's not what's interesting. It's how all the other people around him react to that. Mm -hmm. That is actually the antithesis of what I thought earlier, but here we are now. Uh, Who else could have been better? Vanessa Redgrave. She had stage commitments but could not take the role. And Julie Christie. Oh, sure. Boom. Whatever. She's fine. All right. Let's move on to our puns. Random people of note. Orson Welles playing Cardinal Wolsey. He's a big fucking deal. Yes, he is. Fun note. Welles used an exact duplicate of Wolsey's official seal, authentic parchment, and quill pen for the role. Okay. We have John Hurt playing Richard Rich. Babyface John Hurt. The incredible British character actor who was an alien. Uh, he had the starring role in The Elephant Man. He was Winston in 1984. This was his first major film role. He was paid 3,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. I had to point this one out because it was just so wild to me. I was like, do you know who that is? And you're like, I know his face, but not his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Corin Redgrave playing William Roper. He is the lesser known middle Redgrave brother. Oh, okay. Uh, he did a lot on stage. He wasn't in a whole lot of movies, but he was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Okay. Jack Gwillem playing the Chief Justice. He will return in another small role in Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint. We're coming back to Robert Bolt, y'all. Yeah. Uh, just like, spoiler alert to a degree. Um, we've put our films not in release order, but in historical order. Ooh. Then we have Paul Hardwick playing a courtier. He played the Soviet chairman in Octopussy opposite Walter Gattel as Colonel Gogol. If they were in a bond, I have to mention them. Mm, 
In one of her earliest film roles, Vanessa Redgrave playing Anne Boleyn. Yeah, she looks both exactly like herself and nothing like herself at the same time. She's just <laughs> she's just so young, but she has such a distinct jawline. It's like, oh yeah, that's her. Yeah, she was. This was right before she became a full-on movie star, mm-hmm. and she has no lines in the film. She refused to take payment for her small cameo and wanted to remain unbilled, but the closing credits do list her last as Anne Boleyn. She went on to play Lady Alice Moore in Charlton Heston's 88 TV version of mm-hmm. A Man for All Seasons. I can't get over Charlton Heston playing Thomas fucking Moore. But no. Ugh. David Collings playing the King's Messenger. He played Bob Cratchit opposite Albert Finney's Scrooge. And Drew Henley, in an uncredited role, he was Red Leader in Star Wars A New Hope. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now are you ready for the fun one here? Oh, okay. Awards. Awards. Okay. Like, I mean, not surprise. Historical drama, it's awards Uh bait. Awards bait. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards. All right. It won Best Costumes Color. Fuck. I think the costumes are garbage. (laughs) Like, there's this one scene where all the dudes are, like, running towards the boats. And when I was like, they just put them in bright fucking colors so they could tell who was who. Like, that's it. Like, that's all that's happening here. I'm going to be honest. I've only heard of, like, one of these other movies, and I've never seen any of them. So, <laughs> who knows? It won Best Cinematography Color. Yeah, all right. I'll give it to that one. It's a very pretty movie. Robert Shaw was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Okay. This was his only ever Oscar nomination. He lost to Walter Matthau for Billy Wilder's The Fortune Cookie. Mm -hmm. Uh, He became the second actor to be nominated for playing Henry VIII after other Billy Wilder guest Charles Lawton. And then in 1969, Richard Burton got nominated by playing Henry VIII in Anne of the Thousand Days. Henry VIII is Oscar bait. Oh, sure. If anybody wants to make another movie about Henry VIII, man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Guaranteed Oscars. All right, Best Supporting Actress, Wendy Hiller, who played Alice Moore. All right. Whatever. She lost to Sandy Dennis in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm-hmm. Because this is the same year as that movie, which is one of the greatest fucking movies I've ever seen and greatest adaptations of a play I've ever seen. Mm. It's great. It won Best Adapted Screenplay. No, it's wrong. Alfie and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf were nominated this year. For adapted screenplay, are you fucking kidding me? I've never yeah. seen Alfie, but I've seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and that is a much better movie in and of itself. And the other two are not not slouches either, but Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is like one of the greatest adaptations I've ever seen on film. Yes, of a play that's not very easy to adapt. No. <laughs> like, jeez. <sighs> no, wrong. It won Best Director. Beating Mike Nichols for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Wrong. And Michelangelo Antonioni for his wildly imaginative blow-up. I don't want to Just frequently that. cited as like one of the greatest filmed movies ever made. Jesus, this is the worst. It won Best Actor for Paul Schofield. All right. I, I'm yes. going to choose not to be mad about that. He beat out Michael Caine for Alfie. He beat out Steve McQueen for The Sand Pebbles, and he beat out Richard Burton for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But it's a toss-up for me between Burton and him. Like, they're both that good in their movies. That's fair. Absolutely. Schofield had no thought that he was going to win. He assumed Burton had it 
made. Did he not go? No. Okay, yeah. He was like, I'm not going to win this. Look at what he fucking did. This was back when that was allowed. They actually had to mail the statue to him, and it got broken while in the mail. That's hilarious. Yeah, like nowadays you can't pull that with the Oscars. Like you better better have a really good reason not to be there. And finally, mm-hmm. it won Best Picture. Fuck, why? It beat Alfie, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, the Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? No, give it to Robbery! That, this, I, no. The answer is no. This makes it one of the four films to win Best Picture after winning Best Play at the Tonys, alongside My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, and Amadeus. And wow, is it not nearly up to par with those. That's bad. It's not as bad as Braveheart, because Braveheart's like the pits, but it's not good. (sighs) The Academy. All right, we move on to trivia. While this was the only time Robert Shaw and Orson Welles worked together, this was not their only ever interaction. Robert Shaw rented Welles' Madrid home in 1970 and accidentally started a fire that destroyed many of Orson's unfinished scripts and films. Well, okay then. Robert Shaw drank too much. Yes, we talked about that thoroughly in Jaws. There was a long-standing rumor that Orson Welles claimed to have directed his own scenes for this film, which is something Orson Welles would have done. Yeah. However, in Peter Bogdanovich's book, This is Orson Welles, Welles actually gave full credit to Fred Zinnemann and praised Paul Schofield for his performance, which is also something Orson Welles would have done. Mm-hmm. Five of the historical figures in this film are all named Thomas. Jeez. Sir Thomas More, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, Thomas Cromwell, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, and Thomas Howard, a.k.a. the Duke of Norfolk. In order to not confuse anyone, in both the play and the movie, only more is ever referred to as Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking England, man. (laughs) Name your kids something else. And finally, when trying to recreate the snowy landscape of winter, truckloads of styrofoam were trucked in to scatter about on the land. But as soon as it was delivered, real snow started falling instead. And that leads us to our ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, uh, it's got to be that chain, right? That big fuck off gold chancellor chain. Chancellor chain. (laughs) I guess. So ridiculous. I'll go first, because I I brought these historical movies here. I'm going to go three. Three. It is not a bad movie, Mm -hmm. but it is a thoroughly mediocre movie because it is so bogged down by the weight of its story. It's weirdly a story that's trying to do too much, even though it's not trying to tell a whole bunch of different plot. Mm -hmm. But it's trying to do so much for this one central character when it needed to spend way more time exploring all the other facets. Mm-hmm. And then it just hangs like this giant weight that drags everything else down with it. And it's a shame because, again, the performances in this movie are outstanding. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of these cases where I get why it like became this huge deal and best picture, but like... For every reason, it became the exact opposite of what it was trying to be. Mm-hmm. And I also hold that historical part against it, too. Like, it's it's a bad envisioning of the history of this guy. It's a bad way to try to tell his story. Mm-hmm. So, But again, Schofield is that good. And it's still not 
it's still worth watching. It's just not that great. It's three stars for me. I'm going to go with two. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing to this film. The performances are good. It, 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 I mean, technically it's historically accurate, but it like glosses over a whole lot of shit. And it's just not interesting. It's not compelling. I would never watch it again. The direction is like, it's like the direction serves the performances. Uh, There's just no, there's honest, there's no meat to this film. Nothing. Man. Two hours of trying to just grab onto something when it's a completely smooth surface. Pretty much. All right, well, let's jump about 300 years into the future. Oh, okay. To the U.S. Civil War. Oh, that sounds so exciting. And specifically, the story of the Civil War's first all-black volunteer regiment. Oh, okay. Because we are going to talk about 1989's Glory. Oh, all right. A classic of high school movie watching for history. Uh This was always extra credit, and I never saw it. And um, I'm interested. I'm interested to see Matthew Broderick as a Civil War colonel. Oh man, I forgot he was in there. <laughs> like I, like I've, you know, I've seen like one, the one big scene. I mean, I know it was the thing that like really broke Denzel. Like it's like this guy, leading man, done. No, but we got to see it, right? Yeah, yeah. Now we got to see it and talk about the history. The history. Oh joy. Well. Until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 